This is Sit Rep on BFBS with Kate Jabot. MPs say it's grotesque that 40% of armed forces redundancies have been compulsory, while no civilian staff have been forced out of work. But the Defence Secretary disagrees. Are there bigger threats to the London Olympics than protesters in tents? And we hear from Tahrir Square one year on from the protests that changed Egypt. Hello, I'm Kate Chabot. The Commons Defence Committee has condemned the MOD over the way it's handled the armed forces' job cuts. The group of MPs described the level of compulsory redundancies from the services as grotesque. 40% of armed forces' redundancies have been compulsory, while no civilian staff have been forced out of a job. But the Defence Secretary, Philip Hammond, disagrees. To describe it as grotesquely unfair begs the question, what should we have done differently uh, to make it fairer? Well, a little earlier I spoke to the chairman of the Commons Defence Committee, James Arbuthnot, and asked him if he did indeed have an answer for the Defence Secretary. Well, that question itself begs the question of why did it happen? The figures themselves speak for themselves. To have of the redundancies which are put onto the Ministry of Defence, military military redundancies at 40% compulsory, and to have those which are put onto the civilians as being 0% suggests that there is a discrepancy between those which needs a really good explanation. And since we haven't had a really good explanation, we're asking what it is. We've had now four different explanations as to why uh, there are so few, uh, well, there are no uh, civilian redundancies which are compulsory, but 40% of the military ones are mm. compulsory. And we've had, because we've had so many different explanations, we don't know what the true one is. Indeed, one of those explanations that came from the Defence Secretary in the light of your findings is that it's simply a case that more civilians came forward to volunteer. What do you make of that? Well, the question we then asked in our inquiry, in our in our report, was why that should be so. Uh, that there were so many civilians coming forward. Is it a is it a problem of really low morale, uh, or within the civilians in the Ministry of Defence? And if it is, then that's something that certainly needs to be addressed by the Secretary of State. Uh, there is an impression, which may be a false one, we, we're asking for the explanation here, that the military are being treated less fairly than civilians. Uh, but because we've had so many explanations, that one being that not many civilians come forward, another one from the permanent secretary, namely that civilians are more transferable, more uh, flexibly deployable than the military, which struck us as being completely implausible given the quality of the training that our military receive and the sort of people that we've met. Uh, those sorts of issues need to be bottomed out. And that's what we're asking in this report for a plausible explanation, which, he, which we have yet to have. Well, let's hear again from Philip Hammond. He says it is all being done fairly. They're absolutely not getting worse treatment. A smaller percentage uh, of the armed forces will lose their jobs as a result of this restructuring than of the civilians working uh, for the MOD. The terms on which they will go will be much more generous, more than twice as generous on average as civilians receive. James Arbuthnot, what do you say to that then? 
Well, another thing we have heard is that those who are pointed towards compulsory redundancy are told you cannot actually retrain, even to some of those uh, pinch-point trades where, uh, where the Ministry of Defence is really crying out for people. Why do you think that's happening? Well, uh, the Ministry of Defence has both said it is happening and has said it isn't happening. And so we want to find out with this report exactly what is going on. So the Ministry of Defence now has two months in which to answer our report. And if we get some really good explanations as to why this stark and startling, and we say grotesquely unfair, disparity exists, then we will be, we, we will be much happier. We will accept it. But so far, having had too many explanations for one strange issue, uh, we haven't believed any of them. Is it possible that the MOD is behind in, in repositioning people who may be made redundant because actually they need to keep up recruiting new young people? Well, there is an element of that. And there is also, an, I, following the report that has recently been put out by the Defence Committee, I've been, as you would imagine, getting a lot of emails from people in the civilian uh, in the civilian sector of the Ministry of Defence, saying one of the problems is that the Ministry of Defence is not recruiting new uh, civilians into the civilian, which shows a lack of foresight, sh shows a lack of strategy as to where they need to go in relation to the civilians. And that's another issue that... It, 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 it appears to be being left uh, entirely to the civil service to work out whether they decide to go or not, rather than the Ministry of Defence uh, having a strategy and a structure as to what it wants to reduce. And briefly, your report also criticises the MOD's accounting procedure, which it finds lacking in transparency. What, what do you think is happening exactly? Well, that's, that's because these accounts of the Ministry of Defence have been qualified now for five years in a row. No commercial organisation would be able to uh, survive that sort of thing. And there, and there is no light at the end of the tunnel. There is no apparent uh, time by which the Ministry of Defence is able to say, by such and such a year, our reports and accounts will give a true and fair view of our, uh, of our financial standing. And so... It's very difficult to uh, give a glowing report to accounts when, when the, auditor, the auditor, auditors themselves say these do not reflect a true and fair view of how the Ministry of Defence stands. That was the chairman of the Commons Defence Committee, James Arbuthnot, or BFBS Defence Analyst Christopher Lee, was listening to that. Hello, Christopher. What do you make of the committee's report? Uh, the committee is on, probably on the money. The MOD isn't. Time and time again, you get one explanation from one part of the MOD and not from the other part. It a is this confusion, one. isn't it? How do you actually sort it out and make it more 157 clear? 57 departments, not many people knowing exactly how you tie the whole lot together. And that's one of the problems of the MOD. It is a big spender. It is a big department. The other thing to consider is the, is, is, is the, the make-up of the civilians... I mean, they, they were supposed to be getting rid of a whole bunch of them. So what do they do? They created another department. Therefore, they had to fill it. The other part of it is looking at the military itself. The military is a different animal. We can't compare. And I think it's wrong. The committee is wrong to compare. So you think the Defence Secretary was right in the case that he takes issue with the way that this has been done, that this is all based on tranche one of the redundancies, and there's more to come, that in the end there will be more civilian redundancies overall, and there are people who are actually... There will be civilian serving. redundancies. And, I mean, the, the figures themselves speak for themselves. You know, we know exactly... Exactly how many to 
figure, whatever. And the, the question is, some are, are or, or the argument is, that some are being told, you go, others are told, would you like to go? Yes. And the difficulty when you're dealing with those two, a civilian and a military, is that you make a comparison. You shouldn't. You should look at them quite separately. And, for example, the military, some people are only there for five years, 10 years, 15 years, 12 years. Some have what, so special... Why, should, why well, should you look at it differently? Well, because think? some have... Well, because of the fact that you're, you go into the uh, Ministry of Defence maybe as a career and you're going there for 30 years. Somebody joins the army and they may only be there for five years or 10 years or 15 years. Also, they're going into a specialised uh, business. And so they may not be needed. You take an aircraft carrier where you don't need guys who can actually direct aircraft. It's, it's a simple as that or as complicated as that as, as I think the committee have made it by actually sort of making a comparison. The committee's right, but it's misleading to make a comparison. Sit rep with Still to come on Sit Rep, we hear from one of the Road to Recovery team after completion of their Transatlantic Challenge. And one year on from the start of protests in Tahrir Square, what is Egypt like now? BFBS Sit Rep. The Home Secretary says she would like all camping equipment to be banned from Olympic venues at this summer's London Games. Theresa May called on Olympics organisers to tighten their rules during a conference on Olympic security. She hopes it'll stop protesters like the ones from the Occupy London movement from disrupting the event. But surely the threats to games are bigger and more significant than tents and placards. Our reporter James Hurst was at the Royal United Services Institute for the conference. Hi, James. Uh, there will be a large military presence. Surely they're not there to stop people putting tents up, are they? In a sense, they might find themselves called on to do that. But no, there are, there are three broad areas. Um, there's day-to-day support for the games organisers at venues um, alongside security guards. They're doing things like vehicle checks. About 7,500 people involved in that. There are also experts who are going to be on standby, things like bomb disposal that the military do absolutely best. There is also to be a 1,000-strong unarmed military contingency force on standby. And then there is standard homeland security, frankly, that is going to be beefed up in the in the air and in the sea. And what are the main security concerns at the moment? Well, uh, this conference, we had police, we had senior military officers, we had the Home Secretary. They're all talking about these 150 threats that have been identified in their intelligence exercises. Potential threats, ranging from a Mumbai-style attack to a rise in petty crime or an act of God, you get a major transport link close. 800,000 people trying to get to events. That becomes a security issue. Cyber attack, they're also concerned about. Terror, they're saying clearly the most effort is going into that. Actually, relative to some of the others, it's, it's less likely. But the threat level, we're told, will almost certainly be severe. And this issue of protest, clearly something that concerns them. It could cause serious disruption. As you've shown, the military are heavily involved. Was there any more information about which units are involved and what they'll be doing? We, we know that HMS Ocean will be based in the Thames with helicopters on board. HMS Bulwark and RFA Mounts Bay will be in Weymouth uh, for the sailing there. We will have typhoons on standby at RAF Northolt, normally operating from Scotland to provide overfly. In terms of the land operation, uh, no details of units given to us yet. Some people involved have been told, the specialists, others are about to be told. General Sinek Parker, who's the standing joint commander for UK operations, told me that the details are right being finalised now. Those that are involved in the safety and security aspects of the support will already know that they're earmarked to do this. Uh, Those who are uh, being uh, allocated to the venue security operation, we have just finished doing the staff work to identify what venues are required, how many people are needed to to go there. Uh, I'm producing an order 
now, it'll go out in the next week or so, and individuals, certainly units, will know within a couple of weeks that they're committed to this. Who's going to be in command and control? How will that integrate? There will be a military command and control structure within the military component, but as always, we will, alloc- we will support the civil authority. They will be in charge of our activities. And in terms of LOCOG, we are at the moment working uh, MOUs with LOCOG so that they take the overall responsibility for venue security. We, re- we are re- providing them with a resource. 13,500 members of the military taking part. That's almost as many as athletes across the Olympic and Paralympic Games. It's a big commitment. How concerned are you about how stretched this will leave the forces? Um, I, I, I view this as both the standing joint commander and the commander of land forces. Uh, the resources that we're identifying, the people that we're identifying to do this, are within our capabilities, so we can do it. Uh, but I do recognise that there are other people doing standing tasks and the main effort in Afghanistan who are very busy. Their jobs will not be affected by what we're doing. Uh, Christopher, of those 150 identified possible threats that James talked about, what, what is the biggest one for you? The event itself, and it's the coordination, isn't it? This is the biggest potential threat that we've seen in London, all lining up to come to London for, for donkey's years. So is the infrastructure, when you say the event itself, do you mean that the effect it'll have on... on, on... No, it, it, it is the, the fact that the event is going on, let's say for two weeks and, and at Weymouth, etc., that's particularly important. Any, 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 any soft head could decide on the day that they were going to do something, um, a protest or a terrorist uh, event. That would activate this most remarkable system. So for me, it is the coordination of the whole thing. Somebody says, for example, we've got an incident down at, in, in some street. You can imagine what that will generate in terms of command and control, activating different forces, different sorts of people involved, special branch, uh, terrorist squad, local police, uh, army, navy, air force, the whole thing. And it's the decision-making which is going to be so important on the day of exactly how you respond to a report. It may not be anything, but a report that something's happened. And then the other thing they'll look for is when you get a bang in a North London tube station down below and what part is that in what's going on at the Olympics and that is the sort of thing which the police I know uh, a dread that could disrupt the whole thing including all the emergency services and you clog up the command and control system and also physically the people on the ground. Yeah um, James you're sitting there nodding away and from from talking to the people there yesterday at that conference did you get a feeling that they're they're very aware they're taking this very seriously and they got those decision making procedures worked out? Certainly what we were told was that there you know there has been a lot of work we saw all these incredible diagrams of how systems will integrate we were told about the planning that's been done the rehearsing that's already been done and the rehearsing that is going to continue there are different agencies including locog who essentially are there to organize a sporting event and i did think theresa may's comments on on tent saying that they hope locog will ban because ultimately it's up to locog to decide what goes in suggested, I might be reading too much into this, but suggested some friction. I think certainly some commentators uh, 
in the media have wondered whether Lowcog are putting enough into security. They were putting on a united front yesterday, and Lowcog was certainly saying... What's the price on security? Oh, I couldn't tell you the numbers. I wouldn't like to pull a number off the top of my head. But we're, we're talking about, you know, 25,000 or so people involved over a month or so of the Olympics and Paralympics. Plus, you've got things like the torch relay. That starts in May. And, you know, we saw last time the torch relay came to the UK for the last Games. That was a target for protest. It becomes a security. So it is an immense operation. They're planning, but as Christopher says, they need to execute it and not have the whole thing gridlock. All right, James Hurst, thank you. This is BFBS. Sit rep. The Defence Secretary has said Britain could send military reinforcements to the Gulf if the row with Iran over its nuclear programme escalates. Philip Hammond said the decision to send HMS Argyle as part of an international flotilla of warships through the sensitive Strait of Hormuz sent a clear signal to Tehran. Iran has threatened to close the strait through which 35% of the world's tanker-borne oil exports pass in retaliation for sanctions against its oil exports. Richard Ottaway is chairman of the Foreign Affairs Select Committee and joins me now. Richard, thank you for your time today. Um, Afternoon. Hello. H- how serious has the situation got? Well, it's, it is going up. Um, uh, no, it's escalating. Uh, the Iranians show no sign in backing down. Uh, the UN resolutions seem to be having no effect. They are continuing their enrichment of uranium, and there's no doubt about it, the world has to respond. And that was really the message that we were sending by joining that international flotilla that you just mentioned. Indeed, and the Defence Secretary has said this week it would send reinforcements, if necessary, to the region. Why is the government so vocal on this? Because it will have to follow up on those kind of threats, won't it? Well, we are a leading player on the world stage as a major player in NATO, a member of the, uh, a permanent member of the Security Council in the United Nations. We do have a responsibility uh, in foreign affairs uh, around the globe, and there's no doubt about it, we have to play a leading part here. And uh, also, of course, London is a very much the centre of world shipping, world finance, and it would be illusory to think that any blockade or um, any impact upon shipping in the Gulf um, would not affect us, because it clearly will. And how likely is it at the moment that Iran will close the Strait of Hormuz, do you think? Well, I don't think they're capable of um, closing the Straits. Um, uh, it is. It, it is. Uh, uh, Why fed- do you say that exactly? Well, I believe that we have the military resources to keep it going. Um, as a young man, I was in the Royal Navy, and I used to patrol there quite regularly. And I realised it's quite a complex area to close. Um, it's fairly deep at the key point, where so scuttling ships and mines will be uh, will be fairly difficult. And um, I think we do have the military hardware to defend uh, our shipping, and that's really again what the Argyle was up to. Chris- I'm just thinking that we talk in big terms about the threat from the intentions of the Iranians and the response of NATO or uh, international force. I'm more concerned about the surprise elements, for example, in the, um, in, in the Iranian Guard that have absolute control of the Iranian naval forces in that area who might do something which we think is absolutely potty. Why on earth would you do that? You can't get away with it. But they do something, 
and that starts a chain reaction. Indeed, indeed, Richard Osway, I mean, the situation we're in now, it could take very little, couldn't it, to get us into a conflict, a very near conflict situation, couldn't it? Yes, but Christopher puts his finger on a very important point in that there are divisions inside the Iranian regime. There are two power bases. They are loggerheads with each other. There is one half quite clearly thinks that they should be more proactive and engage with the West. Um, but you're quite right. The, the, the potential for a flashpoint by hotheads um, is there, and that is what we actually have to protect ourselves about. I mean, you know, when I, I mean, it is quite possible to close the straits for a few hours of, of that. The, there is no doubt. But in the long term, I think we are capable, however, of responding. Uh, uh, Richard, briefly, uh, this is all about stopping Iran from building a nuclear weapon yes. in the wider picture. What if these sanctions don't work? Well, um, then we have two choices, uh, either a military strike or we have to learn with a nuclear armed Iran. And it's worth noting that both the um, state of Israel, the president, present president of the United States said that is not an acceptable option. Yet there's still a part of me that thinks that a full-scale military strike is the least likely option. Um, Which means what exactly Well, then? I mean, an attack on uh, Iranian uranium production facilities. I de- I, just, if it's the least likely option, though, I, I, what, what is the most likely thing to happen? Uh, then it will be a nuclear-armed Iran, and we actually have to start looking at how we live with a nuclear-armed Iran. But I haven't given up on sanctions. Um, I think these are going to be very, very swinging sanctions. I think they're going to find it very difficult uh, to, to respond to them, and there may yet be developments, diplomatic developments um, in the pipeline. All right, well, let's move on to Syria. Britain and France have joined efforts at the United Nations to end President Assad's rule, but Russia remains opposed to sanctions on Syria and has reiterated its opposition to military intervention. Um, The Security Council could vote as early as next week on a Western Arab draft resolution. Uh, Richard Ottaway, is Britain doing enough with regards to Syria? Well, we are trying very hard there. We have been leading the EU sanctions there as well. But in the United Nations, I know our people are absolutely flat out trying to get some resolution. But uh, the resolution is... Uh, because of Russians' veto on the Security Council, will be a fairly weak one. Um, It won't be like the resolution that we had in Libya. And as long as Russia is shielding and protecting Syria, it is very difficult indeed to actually make some progress there. And it it may need something rather unexpected like um, Turkey to uh, play a major role in all this. Is there, is there not a danger, though, with the benefit of hindsight in years to come, we'll look back and say, given the number of deaths, given the fact there's been allegations of torture on the rebels, um, that we'll say we really didn't do enough? Well, uh, that would be easily said, that we didn't do enough, but then you have to ask yourself, well, what could we have done? And I do not think the world is ready for an intervention in Syria without UN backing. Um, I think that would be quite a dangerous step. And we've always had UN backing uh, in one way or another for the interventions. And to go it alone would be very difficult indeed. Uh, Christopher Lee, the Arab League's got another month for monitors to to continue what they're doing in Syria, but not as big in numbers, are they? How well are they doing, do you think? A couple of people I've spoken to in that area have got a wonderful hypothesis. And they are looking for a palace revolution in Damascus. And they have been making it very clear 
So they're uh, simply there margins. to create a situation. Well, no, so they're not there something... to do it. That's the next stage. You see, what's happened is it, it, it hasn't worked. You know, as Richard said, you know, it, it, when you say to him, well, what else should we do? What could we do? This is not Libya. You can't set up an airstrike on the place. And so what they're saying, a palace revolution, which they make it very clear that they would support the outcome, and they've identified the people that they would, that they would think could carry this out. That is their hope. But if not, if it's not going to be that, there is nobody apart from this bunch in the Arab League, I don't think there's anybody who's got a credible solution to what we in the West, so-called West, would say, we've got to stop it. There is nothing we can do to stop it. Richard Ottaway, it really does show that you, you, you said earlier we are a, a still a leader, a player mm. on the world mm. stage, but mm. we're, we're powerless in this situation, are we? Well, um, our options are limited. Um, as Christopher saying that there may be a palace coup. In fact, I'm not convinced that President Assad is in control at the moment. I think it's some of the uh, murkier forces behind him who are driving this forward. And so if there is a palace coup, it, 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 it has to be quite a deep one to root out a lot of people at the top. Um, but, in the, but I don't think that, uh, well, Christopher may know more than I do, but um, I can't see it happening in the short term. And I think this is going to be around for quite a while yet. All right. Richard Ottaway, Chairman of the Foreign Affairs Select Committee, thank you very much for your time today. Thousands of Egyptians returned to Tahrir Square in Cairo this week, a year after the protests which overthrew President Mubarak. Islamists, who now command a majority in Parliament, are celebrating the anniversary, while pro-democracy supporters want further change and an end to military rule. The BBC's John Lyon has been reporting on the anniversary and joins us now from Cairo. Thanks for your time today, John. Um, What's the atmosphere like there? Well, uh, it's gone back to normal today. It was a strange atmosphere yesterday, really. It was called a protest, but really it was more of a party, actually, uh, or or a series of competing protests, really. It was a very, very big crowd. Uh, Absolutely, I mean, you you just couldn't move in this very large square. You couldn't move there or in many of the streets around it. So there must have been many, many thousands of people out there. But it was a lovely sunny day. People were celebrating. It was a public holiday. And people are very proud of what they've achieved. And many people, anybody you spoke to would say, yes, we want to complete the revolution. But when then when you ask them what they meant by that, uh, they didn't have a, such a clear answer. So how much do you feel or, or do the people there feel has been achieved in the last 12 months? You know, it, it's, a, it's a, a, nothing and everything. And you can have this debate about almost every aspect. But I mean, Egypt is changing and, and you can't stop that. Uh, We've just had, of course, the elections and the Muslim Brotherhood, who a year ago technically were banned, are the largest single party. But more than that, the society is changing. You couldn't have big demonstrations a year ago. You couldn't have free trade unions, which even though they haven't been legalized, are there. Uh, There was a demonstration, apparently a protest inside state television a couple of days ago, uh, where they wanted to be able to broadcast, uh, you know, the the truth as they saw it, not just what they'd been told to do. So in a way, everything's changing. But in a way, the government hasn't, hasn't really done anything. For example, they haven't reformed the police force, which is one of the biggest problems. The interior ministry is still notorious for dragging people in and doing nasty things to them. So in a way, the country's been in limbo for a year, and that's the really fundamental problem. Nobody's really picked up the, picked up the baton and run with it, and it's, nobody's really tackling the big problems about interior ministry, about the economy and so forth. In limbo, yes, you say. Um, this election in June of the new president, will that move Egypt on? Will that be the defining moment of the revolution? Well, that's, that, that should be, and that should be the key. But even then, uh, the question is, do people really want to take responsibility 
particularly for the economy because uh, the country's running out of money and somebody's going to have to, frankly, probably slash subsidies, which would be deeply unpopular. And the Muslim Brotherhood, having been so delighted to get so many seats in Parliament, are now not quite so sure what to do with their victory and whether they really want to be in government at all, as somebody's then going to be blamed for these tough decisions or, or for the failure of, of, of the economy. So it should be a turning point in June. Will it be or will it just drift on even further? We'll have to wait and see. It's very difficult, isn't it, to predict, because no one would have predicted the the uprising in the first place. Christopher, um, do you think it'll be defining moments when the elections are held? I I don't think you can switch it on and switch it off like that. Let's, let's, a couple of points. Um, Young people especially, or the educated young people, all demanding better society, more jobs... Uh, an independent judiciary, etc., etc. You can't do that. Nobody can do it just because you got rid of Mubarak. And that's very important. There's a guy called Mikhail Nabil, who is a Coptic. I think he's a Coptic. He's not a Muslim, he's not part of the Brotherhood or whatever. He's just got out of prison. He's still protesting. Every time he gets nicked, why? Because he's actually protesting against the military. There is this sense, as some Egyptians would say, that quite frankly... Uh, You may have got rid of a dictator, but you haven't got rid of a dictatorship. You have to have enormous law and order, and only the military perhaps can exercise it, so that you can get to a point when you're going to be able to give those people in Tahir Square what they protested for. And they've got to understand, you can't do that in just because there's an election in March, just because another year has gone by. This this is a long-term thing. John Lyon, how do you see things progressing in Egypt? It's going to be a really long process. Uh, I've always been optimistic about all the changes in the Middle East at the moment, in the long term. But Egypt, it's a really big, heavy super tanker that's been rusting and sailing towards the rocks for so long now. And there's so many aspects of things you've got to change here. Uh, I mean, even, even if you get a full democracy, and Lord knows we're a long way from that at the moment because the military's power is so entrenched still, even if you get that, you're not guaranteed good government. Right. In a way, you could come in in five minutes and say what needs to be done in this country, but in a way, it's going to take years and years and years to turn around or, government, society, the way of doing things. All right, John Lyon in Cairo, thank you very much for your time today. Well, unfortunately, we were unable to speak to the Road to Recovery team due to technical difficulties, but you can see a full report on the challenge on British Forces News. That's all we have time for this week. My thanks to all our guests and, of course, Christopher Lee. Let us know your thoughts on today's programme. You can follow us on Twitter, Twitter, Tweeters at BFBS Citrep. Thanks for listening and bye bye for now.